you don't look like anyone who has ever co-hosted my podcast before. <laughs> I don't know how you got here. I broke into your apartment. You found me here. I saw the glass, but I assumed I just dropped something. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm one of your rabid fans on Facebook. I've been telling you to get that shot. They can cure rabies now. <laughs> but I did appreciate the e-stalking. I guess I'm Seth Pearson. And I'm Ikoi Hero. Welcome, Ikoi, to the By That I Mean podcast. I don't know what to do with myself. I hope it involves talking, potentially about some of the subjects that I've researched meticulously ahead of time. So I broke into a radio show unprepared. Honestly, I think if you're going to break into a radio show, unprepared is the best way to do it. Okay, I will take that as an encouragement. We've never interacted in any other form except for being friends outside of this and knowing each other on Facebook and constantly interacting with each other. But now that you're here, I feel completely... At ease in recording a podcast with you. Would you be up for that? Okay. And and then you can clean up the glass after. Do, do I have to clean up the blood as well? These are things I didn't want to ask about, but since you brought it up. Like, do I have to disinfect? I mean, I've got some spot shot for the carpet, but. I guess I can go buy some Clorox. That's good enough, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> That'll do. That'll do. Unfortunately, I am not a porcine. I mean, I'm not going to say that there's a direct connection, but it's interesting how they're expanding women's jails and building more of them. The forced birther, because I don't call them pro-life. You know, I mean, they're getting more and more and more comfortable with the idea of throwing women in jail for abortions. I think that they feel so threatened that they now have literally no ability to stop themselves from saying exactly what they actually think and want. And I think for 30 or 40 years, the Republican Party has been able to coast to electoral victory mm -hmm. by like stoking enough white resentment yeah. of the whites who were still the majority of the country and still will be for just a little while. But they were able to stoke enough resentment without outright saying what their ideal plans were. Oh, absolutely. I mean, their ideal plans what would happen if they were. got all the power that they wanted. But now I think that they know their days are numbered, and their response to that is to go whole hog. Yeah, just go the full. Trying to pitch whatever it is they think will push enough angry white people to vote for them. Literally this week, Britt Hume gave a soliloquy basically on his Fox News show about how the Republican Party needs to just say fuck it to the Hispanics, ruin immigration mm -hmm. reform, and run in 2014 specifically by trying to go after white people because, yeah. and his, his quote unquote evidence for why that will be a good idea is that 
fewer white people voted in the 2012 elections than in the 2008 and 2010 cycles. And of course, as I know you know, like they, Fox News represents the official voice of whatever is floating around the Republican echo chamber. So, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's one of those things where, again, that's what they've been doing, you know, oh, yeah. for a long time. And now they're just being like super, super honest about it. What amazes me about the Republican Party is how poor white people still vote. It's like, why? It's like economic Stockholm Syndrome. No, it is. Tribalism is what it is. Except it's one of those things where it's like you're not you're not part of the tribe. You you they they pretend you are, but they're throwing yeah. you under the bus. They're redesigning the bus to drive over you more swiftly. Yeah, yes, yes, and yes, flatten yes. you more fully in the process. Exactly. <laughs> like it's because it's I way mean, more like, specific. you know, things like I mean, food stamps, that's yeah, I mean, you know, you grew up in the South. Like the rule, you know, like the South is like I mean, it's heartbreaking the poverty. Well, and it's not only is the the poverty endemic and everywhere and heartbreaking, but it's so effectively hidden and so systematically ignored. Yeah. That the rest of the country like buys into the avoidance mechanisms that are used to try to cover up that poverty. Like I I, I get very angry when people denigrate the South as as this, like, monolithic whole. Oh, it's not. And and dismiss it as though there aren't millions and millions of people who would be very progressive if they had ever been lucky enough to be born in a place where they could get an education. Yeah, that's, that's you know, that's a huge, huge thing. Education access. I mean, in the South, there are still districts where you have, like, you know, five grades in one room. Well, and it's, it's getting to be that in even more places now yeah. like even outside of the south and that's that's what pisses me off so much about people who think it's a legitimate argument to lump the south together into just one bowl of awfulness and dismiss it wholeheartedly when the things that are being done in the south are being exported to all the other parts of this country but somebody had a really, really good article. It was a blog article a while back. It's I think, you know, the guy's like a professor somewhere. But he was talking about how, like, the policies in the Deep South are similar to the Irish, what the British did to the Irish. Oh, wow. In terms of the poor. Yeah. You know? Uh, and he, he uh, I'll, I'll see if I can find that blog. Okay. It was one of those things. I mean, I read so much and I well, just I mean, come across uh, things randomly. But, but the that treatment was a, of Irish immigrants in America was a tragedy. Oh, absolutely. And um, I mean, and the treatment of, you know, the Irish in Ireland from the British. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it was just, I mean, like the potato famine, like that didn't have to happen at all. There was enough food in Ireland. It's just that all the food was being exported as payment. To the British. And I also think that's the aspect of South bashing that really gets to me is the argument inherent in it that it either was a choice and that the people of the South are just so stupid and backwards that they all chose it for themselves. No. When really it was people who were systematically and over generations denied the knowledge that they have choices and denied the power within where they live to make those choices. Yeah. 
that's one of the biggest aspects of, you know, why, like, whenever I hear, like, you know, governors like Jindal. Yeah. Oh, fucking Bobby Jindal. You know, and it's one of those things where it's like, you know, because they really want to push charter schools. They really want to push, um, you know, private school vouchers. And the private school voucher parents can't cover. You know, a poor parent can't send their kids to a private school with just the voucher. You have to buy uniforms. Usually you have to buy all the textbooks, like college. Mm-hmm. You know, often the schools are further away. And can the parents take the time and the money driving the kids to the said school. Most private schools don't send buses like public schools do, you know? Well, and in, in Louisiana, it's even worse. Like, Jindal, a lot of the charters in New Orleans are just used to send kids to Catholic schools. Mm-hmm. But but also, I mean, as I know you know, like, the, the whole school reform movement itself is about privatizing yeah. public education. And privatization generally tends to get my hackles up. Yeah, mine too. You yes. know, Be- well, because you can't it. I think it's less accountable in a lot of ways. I, I don't think that inherently making something public is a good idea just on its. Yeah. For its own sake. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. But I have lived long enough to know that adding a profit motive mm-hmm. also does not inherently make any system more accountable mm-hmm. or have better results. Absolutely. Or, yeah, and, and not only that, but it, there are certain things that are just in the public's interest yeah. to have and in the public's interest to do and to promise each other. Yeah. And I think it's reflective of a very different set of principles than most people have to say that it is, in fact, not your goal to educate every citizen that you have and to define good citizenship as being informed and an active citizen. Mm-hmm. So, like, whether it's school vouchers or voter ID laws, the push by the people who are in favor of privatizing everything is always to decrease people's actual power and actual choices under the guise of increasing their liberty. Well, it's one of those things where, you know, it's it's claiming to increase choices while at the same time limiting access. Right. You know, because, I mean, that's the... And the same, that's the same rubric that goes into passing the crazy anti-abortion laws. Yeah. It's saying that, oh, we just want... We just want these clinics that provide abortions to be able to provide the same kind of medical care that you would have in a hospital. We're, we're only trying to do this for the health of the women, you know. That's really blatant. I mean, dentists do oral surgery, you know, and actually oral surgery is really involved. You can cause paralysis. I mean, like, you know, first trimester abortions is a fairly simple and easy procedure. You know, it does not need a hospital for safety. Well, and then you scratch just beneath the surface level language that they use and you find out that in the case of the Texas laws and the law, the new laws in Ohio, which we'll talk about later, they design the laws to categorically exclude nearly all abortion clinics operating in the state from continuing to operate. In Ohio, they made it part of this new law that every clinic that provides abortions has to have 
a standing agreement to transfer patients to a nearby hospital and surgical center. But it was already in previous law elsewhere in Ohio that no hospital could have an arrangement with an abortion clinic to take patients from those clinics. I I have to admit it's fucking brilliant, but it's mind-bendingly horrible. And they've been incredibly effective. I mean, that's the reason that, you know, the vast majority of counties in the United States no longer have an abortion provider. And I think it's over 90%. The quest since Roe to roll back and restrict women's access to health care has been consistent and very effective. Yeah. And it's bearing the fruits of that success in legislation. But let's not forget, I mean, the the terrorism has been an, an incredibly effective political tool. Oh, absolutely. To restrict and combat women's access to health care. Yeah. Not just specifically abortion, but pretty much every aspect of women's health care involving their sexy parts. Well, you know, the reproductive health care, you know, whether it's pap smears, whether it's, you know, for teenagers getting access to Gardasil, the um, HPV vaccine. I mean, there's they've done an incredibly effective campaign. I mean, in terms of Roe, what they're doing is basically trying to kill Roe by a thousand paper cuts. I think the broader strategy at play with these state-by-state abortion measures is to try to get someone to try to challenge one of those all the way up to the Supreme Supreme Court Court. so so the Roberts Court can re-litigate Roe v. Wade. And I don't like thinking about that. No, no. I mean, well, it's one of those— It makes me want to burn all the things. Well, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, because out of all the justices, I think I would say I would say that Scalia is kind of a caricature. Like, you know how he's going to rule. He's going to side with evil. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. you know, versus if you look at the history of Robert's ruling, he's incredibly smart. And he's so strategic. He's incredibly strategic. when to hold back and not play the card that he has in his hand so that he can play the whole hand and have a better one later. I think out of all the justices, I think he's probably foundationally the strongest conservative in a sense of like having a real, real conservative view that he really wants to see come to fruition. It's a big picture. Well, and it's it's amazing because the quest of the Koch brothers and the long run goals of groups like the John Birch Society or Heritage. And, and the Heritage Foundation has always been to get conservatives into these incredibly prominent political places of power where they can really reshape the fabric of society in the ways that the conservative movement got its start denigrating and panic trolling about. They refrain from the conservative movement for the last 30 years was activist judges. And yet days ago, we saw the Supreme Court strike down the fucking Voting Rights Act, you know, and it's exactly as you said, like, it's clear now that John Roberts is in it for the long haul. Oh, he's absolutely. I think he was always you oh, know. he was he was always in it. Um, amazingly so, especially and specifically for the Voting Rights Act. He cut his teeth. As one of the Reagan youth in the 80s working at a law firm that was trying to challenge the Voting Rights Act. So this is kind of, you know, I mean, to a degree, this is 
something. This is his fucking Super Bowl ring. This is like John Roberts is going to Disneyland. (laughs) And it's also how they dismantled the Voting Rights Act is, you know, I mean, I, I do have to give it to him, at least in that he's brilliant in the way that he does Terrible, terrible things. <laughs> you know, I true. Mean, because he, he struck down Section 4, I believe, not Section 5, of the Voting Rights Act. And, and the video that you posted with Chris Hayes did a beautiful explanation on... Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's kind of go a little bit further back than that. Mm-hmm. The Voting Rights Act was one of the bedrock pieces of civil rights legislation in America that came about when was it 1965 was the first one and then it was reauthorized in 2005 the civil rights act was very much a product of an america that had a congress that worked mm-hmm. which is the thing we no longer have and also specifically an american congress capable of acting in a bipartisan fashion so surprisingly so that when it was reauthorized in the early 2000s it was bipartisan and included the votes of tons of Republicans like Mitch McConnell and John Boehner, who will now do absolutely nothing to resuscitate the act in any way, shape or form. The Supreme Court ran through pretty much a sweep, a hat trick of controversial rulings in the last couple of weeks. Oh, absolutely. One of the big ones that hasn't been talked about much is the job discrimination. That's also a That was a really big case that got completely swamped amid the coverage of their DOMA ruling. Actually, I think the DOMA ruling kind of blew away even attention paid to the Voting Rights Act ruling. Yeah. And also, I mean, there were there were major like the affirmative action was that was um, University of Texas, Austin versus. um, There was also the ruling on the Native American adoption. Aside from the DOMA ruling, you know, the the courts have dismantled a huge chunk of, like, protections that were awarded to protect minorities and serve as a buffer against discrimination. The, the big slate of rulings was fundamentally a, a huge loss in so many ways. Honestly, not a huge loss for Democrats, but losses for democracy. Like, yeah. large rollbacks of the ability of every American to have their voices heard and to have wrongdoing against them redressed, like to have their grievances addressed. Yes. Like it's it's harder to prove job discrimination now. And this is from the New York Times. In two decisions issued on Monday, the Supreme Court effectively made it harder for workers to prove they have suffered employment discrimination in Vance versus Ball State University in which an African-American worker accused her supervisor of racial harassment. The court held that the person she accused was a co-worker and not a supervisor, a distinction that requires a higher burden of proof for the plaintiff's employer to be found liable. So the decision was written by Alito and, <laughs> and rejected the definition of supervisor advanced by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission as somebody authorized to take tangible employment actions or direct the employee's daily work activities. 
So the EEOC said a supervisor is anyone who has power over you. What did the balls and strikes column as I see them straight down the middle U.S. Supreme Court define as the supervisor? Basically, the court ruled that supervisor should be limited to someone authorized to, you know, take actions like hiring, firing, promoting, demoting, you know, reassigning employees so someone is only your supervisor if they're the head of your fucking company. You know, it could be several people removed, but head of your department that you may not even talk to or... And who may not have any idea who you are. And And may and not your have situation. any interaction with you or yeah. reason to trust you whatsoever. Absolutely. And what they just made happen is raising the bar for what constitutes supervisor. They didn't even raise the bar for what constitutes discrimination. Well, I think, you know, the big big thing about this ruling is, you know, the the money line is fundamentally that, you know, for an employer to be held liable when a coworker is accused of harassment, the plaintiff has the burden of proven proving that the employer was negligent by not stopping the behavior. That's the big thing. Is that now there's a higher bar. You know, for being able to say, hey, like, you know, I let my manager know that this was going on. And is that manager now, you know, is he liable? I mean, you know, you would think that common sense would dictate, yes, that's a manager's job. But the common sense is in this case dictated by the power relationships of the people involved. Yes. And this this Supreme Court very strategically and very obviously to me now is rewriting the power relationships of American society to make it harder for people without power to ever get it and to make it impossible for people with power to be held responsible or liable for what they do with it. Yes. And I think that like that to me finally like puts a through line to what we've been watching happen over these last years with the Roberts Court's rulings. Yeah. Because they are so strategic and so careful even about what cases they pick. The affirmative action case they picked um, concerning a white young woman who was denied entry to the University of Texas, they sent back to the lower courts for reconsideration. They basically set in motion a chain of events that is going to lead to the Supreme Court being able to rule on pretty much all affirmative action policies. Yeah, the Supreme Court sidestepped the sweeping decision on the use of race-conscious school admission policies, ruling Monday on the criteria at the University of Texas and whether it violates the equal protection rights of some white applicants. Uh, The justice threw the case back to the lower courts for further review. The court affirmed that the use of race in the admissions process, but made it harder for institutions to use such policies to achieve diversity. So they've all, again, they have already changed the power relationship, but by virtue of the fact that they then sent that case back, they get it out of everyone's minds. Oh, absolutely. CNN, and that's where your 
mm-hmm. quoting from is the CNN article. The way that the mainstream media then frames it is exactly as John Roberts wants them to frame it. He wants to be seen as the guy who is calling the balls as he gets them and playing it fair straight down the middle. So for a situation like this affirmative action case, John Roberts still gets to be seen and viewed by the media as a moderate yes. guy who who really just wants the best decision when, in effect, he gets what he wants every time they pick up the case and just gets more and more of what he wants the more and more times he can pick up that same issue and pick up that same case. But it's it's amazing because he's even great at working the media to tell the story about him that he wants to be told. Oh, he. I mean, you know, it's one of those things where he even looks moderate. Oh, yeah. You know, we're, oh, we, because, yeah. because Scalia, you know, he looks a little... Scalia's too old to give a fuck. Like, he <laughs> has to, he, I think just by laws of nature, he has to let it all hang out now. Yeah. Like, I am amazed, like, I... I'm sad that there aren't cameras in the courtroom because I would totally imagine Scalia like riding in on Harley (laughs) and like ambling off, like kind of tripping, but hoping no one sees him trip because he rode in on the bicycle and look how cool. I would totally imagine him. I mean, if you see the way he speaks nowadays, he he lets it all hang out. But John Roberts just is, he is such a smooth fucking operator. It's amazing. Yeah, because I mean, even even Alito, like Alito, Alito makes the faces. <laughs> he j- he makes the faces, but there's also he will something. Stare at a bitch. Oh my goodness, Alito. Oh, and he'll mouth things. Remember at the State of the mm-hmm. Union when Obama commented on the Citizens United decision, Alito was the one who like mouthed. That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. You can't say that. But, well, the thing is, he looks like he's, you know, eaten a sour meal. Like, he's yeah, exactly. just, there is something that, you know, he's he's really not a good PR. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Alito is not somebody that you want to send forward to the press to promote your cause. Right, exactly. any, You know, even He's, if it's like adopt kittens, you know, <laughs> he'll find ways to make that sound like yeah. a really sourful proposition. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't take these kittens, I'm going to have to fucking kill them. Just get rid of them. I don't even think they're cute. Just take the kittens. He'll find. No, like uh, the charm of Alito is that he has a warm operating finger that can press a button to make a vote. Yes. That's he's like, uh, uh, well, and I mean, I I guess Alito's lucky in that way in that there isn't more audio and video coverage of the Supreme Court because. I mean, I get acid reflux just looking at the guy because he seems so sour. I want to find out the last time Samuel Alito was happy. <laughs> I just want to ask him that. I, I, I think it may be never. Yeah, I think never was a great time for him. <laughs> yeah, I think that. I feel like he learned and grew a lot, never. <laughs> <laughs> if only he could go back to never. Yeah. But no, lifetime appointments for all of them. I, d- I don't. The Supreme Court is becoming the one institution that I believe that I support term limits for. I think that's, I. it's also, we have such a quickly changing society we are, yes. with technology with you know advancements in in science and technology i mean just look at the field of medicine you know i mean 40 years ago if someone said you had cancer 
or you had heart disease, you were dead. That was most of the nails in your coffin. I mean, that's why you know comparing health costs to, you know, forty、right. years ago also doesn't work because people you know love bringing that up, saying, "Oh well, you know, why didn't things cost so much forty years ago?" It's like, well, you were dead a lot more. Back then, you know, they didn't do quadruple, but quintuple bypass surgeries. You know, for which both you know Cheney and Bill Clinton are, you know, standing beneficiaries. Be- <laughs> yes,、yeah. from you know these advancements. But yeah, these things. I mean, chemotherapy didn't were was just in the founding stages. You know. Well, and it's not just a technological shift. There has been a moral shift in this country. The Decisions that came down from the Supreme Court that regarded LGBT rights and marriage equality were the most conservative forms of the argument that could be made. But this Supreme Court, the same Roberts Court that a day earlier threw out the Voting Rights Act, affirmed the basic humanity of same-sex couples and extended to them the federal rights that are guaranteed to them under the Equal Protection Clause, and upheld the striking down of Proposition Eight in California that bans same-sex marriage in the California Constitution. Those rulings would not have happened even in the last term of the Supreme Court, but. What it's reflective of is not just a technological change, but a moral change, and the inability of the systems and institutions that to we have access to. to to adapt and to actually make them reflect where our views are now. Yeah, and not just where our views, but you know the the aggregate of all the information that's coming out. Right, actual information. Yeah, and in an and being era, able to adapt. And incorporate those informations to rulings is going to become more and more and more important as we become more and more and more technologically advanced. Because information is going to come out. That could be a huge paradigm shift. Well, information is already come out, coming out. That's shifting it. I mean, our our, our post nine eleven illusions of security and secrecy and safety have been completely thrown out the window. Even though I also think that those delusions were going on way too long past their sell by date. It's not just that the legitimacy of the institutions is questionable, because it should always be interrogated. Because the people who we give power to, we ought to appreciate the fact that we are giving them that power and be accountable to ourselves in making our leaders accountable. Because that's power we're giving up, and we didn't have to give it up freely. Absolutely.、Um, but in order to feel like participation in the process is worth it at all, you have to be able to participate in in institutions that reflect. Your actual will, and when you have lifetime appointments, when you have lifetime appointments that are not made at all with any input by the people, then it's awfully hard to hold any legitimacy for a quote-unquote Supreme Court, especially I, in an age of instantaneous communication. Because, like, even though they don't have. Video cameras in the courtroom.、Mm-hmm. They're doing a lot more audio recording and transcripting and releases of the transcripts and audio. And these justices are now actually revealing themselves to the American public. And in essence, I think they're revealing themselves as what they always have been, which is activists. Like that's what judges are in some sense. 
Absolutely. But, yeah. but it's up to the judge to decide for whom he or she will act and on on behalf of what principles they will act. Fundamentally, one of the qualities of a good, good, in quotes, judge is a lot of times, you know, law and legislature can feel really counterintuitive. There are a lot of laws out there on the surface that you think make good sense and that you apply it to, you know, the concept of precedence or concept of, you know, how this applies in the bigger context and that you start seeing major issues, you know? Right. It's hard to scale any idea up to 350 million people. A lot of the times, you know, that's some of the issues that you get with a lot of the discrimination lawsuits is that the, or, or legislatures that a lot of times, you know, you can see on the surface to a lot of people. They're just like, well, I don't see the problem with this being removed. Like, mm-hmm. why do we need this? You know, and you and unless you see like the bigger picture and you see how things are functioning and how systems are working and where they're not working and where they're not working. Absolutely. That's when you're like, hey, absolutely. You can't remove these. These these are foundational protective qualities. The The big thing is that equality is not always justice. Oof, that's big. Equality is not always justice. Yes. Very true. And so, like, that applies to just so many things. Oh, absolutely. So many things. You know, because I mean, that's the big thing with the concept of access. You know, because people, you know, put the now it's not equality, but it's freedom and it's choices. And, you know, everyone loves freedom, everyone loves choices. But what does that do to access? A lot of times, you know, the big idea behind like equality is not necessarily justice is that, you know, a lot of times with justice, justice, you have to get a contextual view. Yes. And also justice is a lot can be a lot more focused on outcomes. Yes. And not just access or supposed or mechanism. It's like, you know, it is a lot of times like equality is just mechanism versus justice is the outcome of how it impacts people, not just immediately, but down the line from an individual level to like a big societal level, because those can differ. You know, Absolutely. And, and so, you know, and, and it's weighing and, and the differences between those two can be used to mask a lot of really shitty internal oppression and Absolutely. Like continued subjugation and and power disparities. Absolutely. The most outrageous hypocrisy to me was the rationale that Antonin Scalia gave on his dissent in the Doma case, which was the mathematical logical opposite of the closely held principle of legal jurisprudence he described the day before. Yes. And unraveling the Voting Rights Act. On the Voting Rights Act case, the section that was struck down specifically by the Supreme Court in their decision was the preclearance requirement. And what that meant was that states that it enacted Jim Crow laws, that had been slave states, and just that it had noted problems with discriminatory election practices throughout American history, had to get prior approval from the federal government and the Department of Justice before they legislatively went ahead with any changes uh, in voting rules, election laws, qualifications for voting, qualifications for getting voting rights after you're a felon, all of that. 
um, they had to get that pre-clearance, and that's what the Supreme Court took away. When the majority in that case laid out their rationale for doing it, Scalia wrote a concurring opinion laying out the rationale or what he saw as the rationale for his block of the court in voting to gut the act, which was that years earlier, when the Supreme Court took up another challenge to the Voting Rights Act, Scalia had said that this ruling is meant to serve as a warning to Congress. It was what Scalia viewed as their broadside against the liberal activists, I guess, of the Congress under George W. Bush uh, when they reauthorized it, uh, when they reauthorized the Voting Rights Act for 25 years after over 10,000 pages of evidence and testimony entered into the Senate and House. Uh, Scalia, in his ever-deepening respect for the division of power um, and the the role of Congress in being the law-writing branch of American government, said that their ruling several years earlier was a warning that Congress had ignored so it was the Supreme Court's obligation. It was up to them as the last possible people that could make a difference, really, to throw the act out the window. And the reason why, and this goes back to what we were saying about the strategy of John Roberts and his ilk, the reason why they effectively gutted the entire Voting Rights Act in ruling the way they did was that they got rid of the preclearance, and that is the mechanism that enforces the guarantees against discrimination that are part of the Voting Rights Act. Yes. It is, again, it's the active mechanism. It is the, it is the part of that law that tips the scales toward justice because it, because it, it, makes the federal government act on behalf of all citizens in all states to secure their voting rights. What the Supreme Court did was say ever so snidely that if Congress wants to write a new formula for how we should determine which states and municipalities have preclearance, Congress can write that any day of the week. They can just, they can do that now. They can fix that next week. Yeah, here. But they know. Mm-hmm that America does not have a functional fucking Congress right now that is capable of writing and passing laws. Because um, this is the actual quote by uh, Scalia. Source is um, Think Progress. And this, yeah, this is an article from Think Progress. And this is uh, Scalia's statement. Um, I'm not going to read all of it, but the big section is, um, and this last enactment, not a single vote in the Senate against it. And the House is pretty much the same. Now, I don't think that's attributable to the fact that it is so much clearer now that we need this. I think it is attributable, very likely attributable, to a phenomenon that is called perpetuation of racial entitlement. It's been written about. Whenever a society adopts racial entitlements, it is very difficult to get out of them through the normal political <laughs> process. <laughs> to get out of them. Like, even putting aside every other word and phrase that came around this, like, it's, it is, it could not be more clear if he painted F the VRA, like, on his naked chest and just presented in front of everyone. Not only does he view it as a racial entitlement, he views it as a thing that 
society has to get out of, literally actively get out of the business of making sure that non-white people's votes are counted. Or that they, yeah, or that they even have access. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, access to being able to vote whether, I mean, because the, I mean, wasn't, wasn't it, I mean, like, as soon as this was struck down, like, you know, several states immediately moved. Beginning two hours after the Supreme Court decision came out, states were already moving to enact changes in voter eligibility, reductions in early voting and absentee voting, eliminate like more of the restrictive voter ID laws. The states went about enacting all of the laws that the Department of Justice and the American government prevented them from passing last year. All the states that were pushing the voter ID laws that got turned down by the federal government last year before the election. Now, one of the few things that Holder is doing well. <laughs> one of the very, one of the vanishingly few things that Holder Eric Holder is not screwing up royally. People can write for days and days about how this is actually, you know, trying to address racial discrimination when it's like, actually, yeah, you are addressing racial discrimination in that you are making it easier to discriminate. Right. They're facilitating racial discrimination and also facilitating the ability of it to be unaccountable and to be uh, hidden from plain sight. They're kind of installing unaccountability for discrimination, not only under law, but but just in everyday society and without enforcement mechanisms against it. Absolutely. You know, and it's also, I mean, one of the biggest myths that pervade societies this concept that poor people are lazy when actually the reverse is true you know you a lot of people work multiple jobs you know low paying jobs i mean it's usually the poor that's putting in more than a 40 hour work week and not and doing backbreaking labor one of the things that got forwarded after the supreme court ruling was you know cutting down voting hours or voting days And that makes a significant, significant impact on people who have multiple jobs, who don't have nine to five where they know what their schedule is from, you know, week to week to week to week. Having election day on Tuesday does exactly the same thing, too. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think there are so many things about the voting process in America that render voting a privilege for the privileged. Yes, And not a right for every single goddamn American. There is nothing in the Constitution that guarantees every American a right to vote, unfortunately. But it should really go without saying that a country that's supposed to be a participatory and representative democracy should allow all of its citizens to participate in it. But we are seeing the reverse happen at a huge pace and at pretty much every level. And it's so it's so galling how little attention is paid to it given how very basic it is and how necessary it is for all other things that we claim as principles to have any chance of success whatsoever. Oh, it's it's a foundational. It's foundational. It comes before absolutely everything else. So. And I mean, yeah, it's, oh, it's so unbelievable to me. 
Well, and it's also, you know, for because one of the biggest, I mean, you know, one of the biggest populations that's moving quickly towards the left is actually the minority populations, whether it's African-American, whether it's, you know, Latino-American. And those those populations are the ones that are clearly, you know, and immediately going to be marginalized. Yes. You know, whether, you know, whether it's voter ID, whether it's, you know, cut hours and shorter hours and, you know, all all the redistricting is a huge, very true, huge aspect of it. We're going to have congressional districts for at least the next 10 years where there are like 95 percent white districts in cities that are like 40 or 50 percent white at the most. And conversely, there are districts that are 90% African-American that wouldn't otherwise be, but they've just been redrawn by Democrats to kind of ghettoize the non-white population of certain areas. And that, it, like, it, it's it's still insane to me that that voting districts are a partisan issue. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but- it's become the whole idea of voting has been so poisoned already that to see its very mechanisms being attacked right now just really enrages me. Well, it's been slow. I mean, you know, with the advent of, you know, electronic voting machines, you know, that was an issue um, in the elections, what, 13 years ago? Yep. You know, it, it, the concept that like once you have these rights and that the rights are guaranteed that the fight is over is a huge myth. You know, yeah, you constantly I, have to stay vigilant because there is constantly going to be somebody that profits wildly, whether, you know, from skating the system, from, you know, trying to. From gaming the system in its favor. You're exactly right. And it's not just the voting Restrictions I mean, it's that everything. only that only if that are really targeted to dismantle the wealth and liberty and fundamental rights of non-white Americans. It's also voting rules that if you're a felon, you have to reapply with the state to get your voting rights back after you're out of prison and fulfill your uh, parole. It's um measures that shut down women's health clinics and Planned Parenthood clinics that provide not only abortions, but access to basic health care for women. That affects minority populations because they don't, they are the people who would be benefited by the Medicaid expansions that all of these states governors have turned down. Absolutely. So it's these people who are fucking with all of the good things. They literally can't help but reveal themselves now. You see this a lot more common now, you know, the 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 phrasing that Reagan would be considered a liberal by Tea Party standards. And actually, if you look at his record, it's not true. It's so not true. It's absolutely not true. No, he was a very, I mean, you know, the um, flight. Yeah, Ronald Reagan dismantled the airline workers yes, union for the flight control yeah he was workers. anti-labor he began the deregulation of the financial system aided a lot by bill clinton of course but, oh absolutely um, um 
Reagan destroyed the second half of Jimmy Carter's mental health program. The first half of Jimmy Carter's mental health plan was dismantling all of the fucking horrific mental institutions and warehouses for the mentally ill in this country that persisted even through the 1970s. The second half of his plan, which he put into legislation that Reagan dismantled, was guaranteed halfway housing and treatment for all mentally ill Americans in their communities, not separated from their communities and institutionalized. Yeah. Reagan destroyed that, which made homelessness, permanent homelessness of the mentally ill, a chronic problem that still remains with us, especially in Los Angeles. Um, He Ronald Reagan started the war on the poor. Um, started the he was a huge huge I mean he he took leaps and bounds in the drug war yeah he he made he made the drug well he didn't make the drug war no he didn't make it but he made it to the prominence that it he made it to the prominence and I think I would say he set the terms for what our drug war still is yeah he made it a war on black and brown men and it remains that very much to this day. To this day. Um, and I think that, like, from what we were talking earlier about how we wish pot were legalized or decriminalized. And I think a big reason why it's still completely criminalized at the federal level is the privilege of Americans' ignorance about how much the drug war is a race war. The the drug war has criminalized generations of black and brown men, literally generations. Also this misconception that, you know, drug users are violent or that drug users are... Are simultaneously lazy and violent. (laughs) Yes. What is a stereotype? You know, stereotype more than anything is lazy thinking you know yes. because i and mean we have a lot it's not just a perpetuation of lazy thinking i think it's also a perpetuation of privileges that are unexamined and un- unacknowledged and like perpetuated by the fact that they're never questioned or challenged absolutely absolutely like, i think That's a lot a huge... of that goes behind Uh, what Roberts believes and what he's worked for all his life. I think that that kind of contextualizes Scalia's madman rhetoric (laughs) for me. We have these systems in American governance and in the institutions where we're all supposed to have our voices heard that reflect the priorities and the conversations and arguments and the perspectives of a previous century. We still have a 20th century, very much a 20th century government. We do not have a 21st century government in any way, shape or form. Systematically, no. Systematically, in terms of the the actual moral principles that a majority of Americans will profess like they they do not match at all where we are as a society and they're making it fundamentally more difficult every single day for us to have any chance of changing them And, and that's why I think that's what I think makes especially perverse the fact that we are so complacent about how broken Congress is. Congress just reached a new absolute forever all-time low in opinion ratings. I feel like that's made a joke so much, but it, it it's just getting more and more tragic and infuriating to me. 
one of the issues with politics and legislature is fundamentally that a lot of people feel that it doesn't directly affect them. This whole, you know, carnival that we see with going on with, you know, Congress and elections and everything else, you know, that's why you get a lot of people saying, oh, you know, well, elections really don't matter or, you know, both two parties are the same. They don't connect that with reality that even their decision not to participate is a decision of participation. It's just to endorse the decisions of all the other people. It's to give up your power without acknowledging that you at least had a choice to give up that power. Yes. The system that we supposedly have in America is one where every single person's voice counts. If we're going to pretend that that's our system, We need to actually take action to make sure that it does represent all people and that all people are included. And I feel like the greatest progress America has made is in expanding slowly and by fits and starts the definition of Americanness, expanding the notion that non-white people, that non-male people can be valid American citizens and deserve the same protection of their basic rights as everyone else. But the old bigotries that we've inherited from the 20th century, which were just recycled versions of 19th and 18th and all the other bigotries and fear of the other that humans have always had, we have been lulled into the idea that our participation doesn't matter, that our voices won't be heard. Well, and that is also, you know, that comes back to the whole concept of, you know, this of lazy thinking. Well, and really what it comes back to is the Ayn Randian worldview of all the people we're talking about, like John Roberts, Scalia, uh, Paul Ryan and Mitt Romney. Mm -hmm. Eric Cantor. (laughs) Ronald Reagan, for that matter. All of them are and were huge disciples of Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand is tossed around so much now in prominence. I mean, she didn't have... Her writings didn't really have the prominence that it did. It really came to, in the public consciousness anyway, in, I would say, like the last eight years when people really started to mention Ayn Rand. Well, here's here's the thing. The libertarian ethos, or it's a lack of ethos, actually. <laughs> it's hathos, <laughs> I guess. The libertarian idea, specifically as Ayn Rand had it, about self-sufficiency and bootstraps and all of that, I would say that was the heart and soul of Reaganism. I think that was heart, and I think that was the heart and soul of, you know, the Reagan era is really the moral majority, the Christian right, really coming to prominence. It was the fringe becoming the mainstream of the conservative movement and of the Republican Party. Absolutely. I mean, that was where it really gained steam. That's where the pro-life movement was really born. I actually don't necessarily think that it's so much Randian, but it's actually, you know, the really old Puritan concept coming mm. to roost. What I see is a fusion of both of those, actually. Yes. You know, it's the... It's, it's, it's a really interesting fusion because, you know, Rand was an avowed co- atheist. Oh, she was an anti-theist. I yeah. mean, like, hated churches and the ideas of gods, like... Because, you know, gods, often religion does, you know, promote charity, and she wasn't a huge... <laughs> right, and it was also collective action, which Absolutely. is always evil, as you know. I think that's a great point. Like, I really do see the fusion of the puritanical terror about 
sexuality, specifically women's sexuality. The well, I think sexuality in general. I don't think it's just limited to women because I think pure. Well, in sex- the, well, but in the female sense, they conflate yes. women having vaginas with women's sexuality. They yes. don't consider sexuality as like humans would consider sexuality. Like that's as a true. That's set true. Of feelings <laughs> and things you enjoy doing that are enrich your life <laughs> and allow you to connect to other people in intimate ways. No. For the puritanical mindset, sexy time is is it's reaching cool. out to touch Jesus's finger and poop a baby out. Well, it is about procreation. It exactly. is, you know, I mean, to a certain degree about creating God's army, which is oh, the yeah, quiverful yeah. move. Is, right, that's is, the, the, is oh. the extreme end of that. I can't remember if I, I think we've talked about the Quiverful movement on the By That I Mean podcast. Can't remember if we actually did, but yeah, it's it's so fascinating and scary. <laughs> Religion always, you know, talks a really, really, really good story against wealth, it, against, you know, of, of, I mean, there's not a religion that doesn't talk about charity and that doesn't talk about, you know, giving back to the community. Selflessly. Absolutely. But it's always interesting to see how, you know, once a religion becomes established, it starts hoarding money and it starts hoarding wealth to the point of being reflected in the lower ranks, like, you know, with the mega churches and the yep. and the, you know, the pastors that are asking for money for their helicopters, you know, and, and you're sitting there thinking, wait, you know, for for these quote unquote holy men to be like clearly consumptionist. You guys, I know. I have asked you for so much money for Jesus over these last 10 years, (laughs) but I found out they have a hook that can come down from your helicopter and pick your boat up. No, no, just don't walk out. Don't walk out. Bear with me. Guys, stay with me on this. I can have my helicopter pick up my boat. Jesus wants me to have a helicopter. Jesus wants us to have, wants me to possess and you to enjoy (laughs) by my having it. A boat hook for the Godcopter. I feel like we can make this happen for Christ. Brought to you by the 700 Club. The routing number for our church's bank account, and it loses any claim to Christianity, the kind of selfish to all others detriment and to the eventual point in the case of climate denial of self-negation and self-destruction. Well, I mean, when, when you're waiting for the rapture. I think that's a smaller portion than I like to fear sometimes. I feel like a lot of people use that as an excuse. But I do feel that there is an aspect of modern man, especially modern man, an animal overworked to his or her, past his or her stress level, that is self-destructive. I think there's an inherent death impulse in humans. I think it's part of the fact that we're conscious and that we fear death. It's that we, we are also infatuated with it. And I think apocalyptic thinking is part of that. I also think it's part of the fear response mechanism that we have to traumatic events and to a world that is changing rapidly before us in ways that we are not prepared to handle. And I think a lot of 
what is now the right wing movement came from Ronald Reagan and folks like him who expertly hijacked people's emotions, our baser emotions of fear and anger and loathing and resentment and hijacked those and made us turn against our own kind of democratic ideals as a country. It adopts the language of tradition and of history, but what it's really arguing for is even more radical control and inequality and oppression than existed before. We still haven't moved beyond the conservative conversation. We're still trying to pass with Democratic Congresses old Republican policy ideas. We, our country is still very much centered politically around conservative ideas. And I don't think they would have been nearly as successful and they wouldn't have been nearly as sticky unless they had those emotions of fear and panic and resentment to hang on to. I think there's definitely that if you're going to inflame those sentiments, you know, it is really convenient to do it in the guise of a religion that asks you not to question. That's any religion, though. Yeah. It's yeah. That's that's where faith comes in handy as a political tool. Absolutely. Because it allows for that kind of echo chamber and it allows you to put that echo chamber effect into more spaces and more conversations. I, I think it's detrimental to our overall like marketplace of ideas or whatever you want to call it like it's I think it's poisoned the goddamn well like we are so shitty at talking about what it means to be a representative democracy we are so convinced of the powerlessness of our vote to change Congress and to make a Congress that works that we literally give up on the idea of having a democracy in the first place I don't think people know what that even means anymore and I think education is a huge huge aspect of you know miseducation miseducation is what it really is miseducation and complete lack of information because I don't claim to be the most knowledgeable person about how our political system works but you know if you take an average adult on the street and ask them you know if how do Supreme Court justices get you know, their position. A lot of people have no idea. Have no idea. Have no idea at all. Like, they don't understand how legislature works. They don't understand how law works. They don't understand the importance of, you know, because that's one of the biggest things that's lost when talking about a lot of these topics of law and legislature is this concept of precedence is a foundational concept in in our laws and legislature and people have no idea what that means and how that impacts issues. Or how the results of it reflect or don't reflect their actual values. Yes. That's the thing because when they get emotionally hijacked, they retreat from the kind of higher order like critical thinking that you need to talk about the things that you believe in, what you're passionate about, what positive, constructive things you want to do and want the country to do. And it becomes about defending your turf, about defending your family, defending your tribe, whatever tribe it is, whether it's your political party that you grew up with, whether it's the race that you happened to be born into. Or religion that you happen to be born into. Exactly. Religion as well. It makes you revert back to the mean It's a thing that you absolutely have to have to be vigilant about because it can 
turn a lot of people on or off at the drop of a hat. And it can make them do things that you would not expect humans to be able to do. And that can be good or that can be genocide. Well, that that was actually, um, I recently saw a movie that talked about that, which was um, the, she's the author of The Banality of Evil, Hannah Arendt. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Her philosophy is that it's not just individuals that are evil, but it's people unthinking it's, and people not being able to think. Yes. And following orders yes. or, follow, you know, just stamping the paper along that yeah. actually cause, you know, things like the Holocaust. Because, I mean, like for and, and one of the issues, again, is like a lot of people think that that was like the last horrible thing that happened in human history. You know, and it's like, no, there was Serbia. <laughs> Rwanda. Rwanda. That you know, happened. That there was that movie with Don Cheadle. You know, I mean, like, you know, it's still happening. People don't know that it's still happening. People it's happening think right now, now in Syria. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, that it keeps happening. And, you know, and, and one of the issues is that a lot of times also people think that, you know, things are over, that we're past, whether it's racism, whether it's sexism, whether it's classism, all these things, like so many people think, oh, we're past that. Homophobia. Yeah. (laughs) We don't need these laws, you know, because that's kind of what's coming home to roost is, you know, people think that we're past things. And again, you know, we don't have this education of awareness. I mean, our our news system, and that was also a Reagan, wasn't it? Oh, deregulating the FCC, making the FCC basically a partner to the telecommunications industry and aiding and abetting its complete takeover of all formerly public communications assets. That was Reagan. That was Reagan. That That was Reagan. He married the corporate sector to the government, as well as marrying the right fringe to the Republican Party. He brought that coalition together. And that's the thing. You're not going to make an American coalition anymore out of just white people, but you have to find some way to stitch that coalition together and get them to act consistently and every time and to act on things that don't necessarily immediately act only in their best interests. I think I would take it even a step further than you. Not only is there a lack of education, there has been a generation of propaganda against the notion of a government that works. Yes. The millennial generation, like my generation, under 30 folks, were the first generation of Americans to be raised from birth on the idea of Reaganomics, that the problem with government is government. We were the first generation to grow up completely in an America that was dominated by people who ran for government based on the idea that government was bad. We're inheriting or we're going to inherit a system that is not prepared to deal with the challenges of this century, much less the challenges from last century that we didn't fix and didn't rise to. We're inheriting systems that are calculated and calibrated to not respond to our needs and interests, to only respond to the needs and interests of the 1% of our society who were already the wealthiest. It it makes me search for what possible way there is that can scale up to 350 million people to get people to question the miseducation 
and the not just anti-Obama, but anti-government thinking that is so embedded in so much of our political conversation, especially like like the mainstream media, the Beltway, all that. Well, what I mean, you know, it, it's interesting that we've stepped away from this idea that we are government. Oh, yeah. Because we are, I mean, you know, in the ideal form, the government is, you know, we, we are part of government. Then we have an active role in, in shaping government, you know, through our elected representatives. And that part of it is so sad and fucked up. Like the the step that was necessary to get Americans to be complacent was to literally break the fundamental principle relationship at play in the concept of the government itself. That's why I say it's anti-government, because it's literally saying that, no, a government is not all of us. It is the powerful people, the elites who are at the top, who have already had the most success, obviously, because they're just better folks and you should all emulate them. That kind of trickle-down morality has to be challenged. Yeah, it's not really trickle-down that's being pissed on, but yeah. <laughs> well, and that's what it is, is the fucked up thing is that those awful principles, those evil principles of greed for yourself in the short term right now and fuck anyone you have to fuck up to get it. That has trickled down. That is what has actually percolated down through American society. Like I think now the majority of profit in America is based on cheating and lying and stealing because there is nothing within the system but incentive. There are no That's disincentives true. That's true. to profiting by cheating, lying, and stealing because the people who do it successfully, now they get to dictate what the law is going to be. They get to write the laws. They don't just get to pay off politicians now. They get to like buy politicians politicians and write laws. You know, in, in an industrialized society, one of the biggest power relationships is the relationship between an employer and an employee being, you know, a a positive codependence where the employer and the employee both benefit and the employer wants to invest in his workers, wants to invest in the company and make it grow. And that's changed completely you know oh, yeah. I mean, we have like a we have like a neo-feudal relationship <laughs> between the powerful and the powerless and it's feudal in the sense that it really is like the king at the top and peasants everywhere else and that's that's one of the interesting things i guess you know coming from another country like for example with with japan and how corporations tend to work there and the relationships you know corporations have with unions i mean it's so antagonistic antagonistic here. You know, I mean, there are like, you know, Mortal Kombat enemies, you know, <laughs> level yeah, antagonism, yeah, yeah. you know, versus the Collective action. <laughs> Finish him, you know. <laughs> but, but, you know, and, and you don't see that. Make him vote on his health benefits <laughs> and pension. Again, it, this comes straight out of Ayn Rand's playbook. The notion that success of a society comes from the actions of a few people who have the most resources and most wealth, who are the most ingenious individuals, that they come up with a revelatory finding or technology or practice or whatever that They're moves the, the whole world heroes. forward. They're the superheroes. 
They're literally, yeah, like Nietzsche's like Ubermensch. Yes. Like they are the Superman. That idea of elitism and of meritocracy, that like fake meritocracy, has kind of come to dominate the people who dominate us. So a result of that is their own self-delusion that they can somehow perpetuate a feudal economy in the face of global climate change. And it's not possible. Like well, it, it none won't... of what the one percent ruling doctrine and approach to running society, none of that is sustainable over the long term. Well, it's one of those things where, you know, I mean, generally social instability is is always marked by, you know, class inequality, of gross class inequality. You know, the more that it spreads, you know, the more There's greater economic inequality in America right now than there was during the Great Depression. And that's the thing, though, is that, you know, I mean, generally speaking, it's not ended well. And it's not even <laughs> ended well, you know, what I don't under... Well, you know, because um, uh, I can't remember how many years ago, but... You know, you wouldn't you would never see this in this country. But, you know, German millionaires and billionaires, I guess, apparently marched in Berlin asking for higher taxes. Wow. You know, the reason being that countries see taxes as patriotic. Well, it was one of those things where, you know, the the spokesperson, whoever that was chosen to speak for the group, you know, his his reason for saying, hey, the reason that we're marching is because we see the benefit of a stable society, right? you know, for our children as well as everybody else, that this is something that we all benefit from and class inequalities tear at social stability, you know? And And I I think the privilege that we were talking about earlier also tears away at social stability because it makes the society unwilling to question the things about itself, the the cultural knowledge that it's carried along with itself that it really should get rid of, that it really should move beyond. Like, I feel like privilege and inequality really go hand in hand because that privilege that you inherit and that you pass along to your children along with your untaxed estates gets replicated through every relationship you have in society, every every interaction you have with the government and with politicians and other people. And I really want to like direct my my energy to trying to understand how to reach people beyond their built-in fears. Because it's not like fear is going to go away. No, it's an emotion that's going to have to a certain degree permanence in everyone. But I also don't think that we can make progress by using fear anymore. Like I was saying earlier, like I I feel like fear literally makes your thinking patterns cruder. I think it's the animating spirit that makes people okay with ignorance. Well, it's, you know, I mean, what, generally speaking, what does fear do to the mind? You know, it causes panic. Yeah, and you go to your lizard brain, you go to your, uh... You know, and it's a very reactionary, it's not a thoughtful, yes. it's not a considered, you know, yes. because when you're panicking, you know, the 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 intuitive thing to do is to decide, decide now, not think Fight about it. Yeah. And it's your it's your amygdala. I was trying to remember the part of the brain that's like secreting the fear chemicals. But it's the amygdala. That's the part of the brain in the neural circuitry that we acquired from the lizards. And in the Evolution. lizard kingdom. Yay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But like we, unlike lizards, are supposed to be able to determine and to decide collectively that one lizard is not at the to- top of the food chain and we're all below the king lizard. <laughs> Supposedly, 
we claim that we are above this, that we are more civilized than that. And yet we see whole groups in this society who are trying to put the lie not only to that, but trying to dismantle the system itself. I don't think there's any one approach that can be taken to counteract fearful actions and fearful thinking. I mean, education is one of the strongest tools. Well, but I, I think, actually, I, I, I know the answer. Like, the only tool that reaches people beyond fear is love. And neuroscientists are doing research on what happens to people when their built-in or inherited beliefs are challenged, and people dig in deeper. People become, yeah, and that's the other reason and, yeah. the echo chamber works, is because when you're acting on faith, and when facts or information become a question of your loyalties to your tribe and your community, then you become defensive, again, reactionary. Absolutely. And I feel like the only emotion in the game of emotional rock, paper, scissors, the only thing that that beats fear is love. Absolutely. But, you know, socially, we have been taught so much limit as to what love is, what love looks like, what love, you know, feels like that, you know. And again, we are just starting to unlearn that now. We are just... Barely, Barely starting. But, you know, I mean, there is this very, very small, incredibly small narrative of what acceptable love is and has yeah. been for so long. Yeah. Which and, and that Even small- the definition of marriage itself was a property arrangement. And I mean, still is to a large extent, but well, it really is only... the legal aspect. Right, exactly. Of, of, it's only in know. like the last 20 or 30 years. Only recently has it come to include the concept that a marriage should be based on romantic love. Oh, absolutely. And I'm of the thought that the overemphasis of romantic love is actually harmful. That we need to also start, you know, like we don't value friendship. We don't value community. Oh, absolutely. Well, but I, and, I don't think those things have to come at the expense oh, no, it, of the it other. Doesn't. And I also feel like the way that Americans and American culture encapsulates romantic love is so fucking awful. Off. So, Again, well, so it's narrow. Off. It's daffy. It's like, it's puritanical. It's, it's like God will reach down, touch your special lady on her lady parts and make her magically attracted to you. Then you will meet in a ridiculously cute way. You will never have a major disagreement and you will get married and have beautiful, beautiful Aryan children. Like, again, we still have the 20th century notion of what love is. We are just starting to unlearn that shit, but the people who can't let that shit go still have way too much power over us and way too much influence on what we want as a society and how we go about getting it. Well, you know, and and by all means, when I say that, you know, romantic love is overemphasized, again, it's also, you know, we have such a binary thinking where we feel like one, like acknowledging one thing has to come at the expense of another. Oh my god, that's I have to pee so bad, but that is such a perfect segue. And that call to nature will conclude this episode of the By That I Mean podcast. My name has been and will continue to be Seth Pearson for the duration of this podcast and all other episodes of it. The By That I Mean podcast is a production of the MFP studio in Los Angeles, California. Thank you for listening, if you did indeed listen to this point in the podcast. And if you enjoyed any or all parts of that listening experience, please consider subscribing to us on iTunes and leaving a review 
and some comments. I will not promise to read them on air, but I will consider it. I'll take it under consideration. I just want to let you all know how happy I am that Ikoi was able to join me for this podcast. There's at least one more episode left to be cut out of the recording session that produced this episode. So sit tight. It'll come to you as soon as I can finish it. Um, I loved recording with Ikoi. We're going to do more of it. Ikoi and I are also planning some new types of episodes of the By That I Mean podcast, which will focus on specific topics like school privatization and the threat to public education. The episodes where we'll be able to really drill down deep into issues rather than trying to cram all the headlines for one particular week into one recording session. I'm really excited to make those episodes. We're going to be reaching out to potentially... uh, guests in academia and guests with practical real world knowledge and stories to tell about the particular subjects that we're addressing. I'm really excited about that and I hope you'll join us for those episodes. And again, like I said, there's at least another episode from this session coming up next and we're going to talk about Wendy Davis. We're going to talk about Edward Snowden, and we're going to talk about how to participate and fight back in a political system that is rearranging itself to deny you the ability to push back. If you would like to tweet me, you can tweet me at MFP Seth. And I I think Equoi has a Twitter, but I don't know what it is. I'll have to ask her. Until next week, I bid you all adieu, and I hope you take good care of yourselves and each other and your loins.